Welcome back to another episode of the Hatch's weekly news podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It. I'm Alec Rich. So back in December, Provost Brian Blake announced the formation of Post-COVID Academic Innovation Task Force. The group was given an extremely important responsibility, which is to make recommendations to Blake about what the future of GW's academics will look like in a post-COVID world. In late January, the task force formally came together, and it includes 19 members from across the university, including deans and associate deans, professors, and two students. Together, the task force will review material from the now-defunct strategic planning process, evaluate ideas from the university community, and look through higher education literature, and then submit its list of recommendations to Provost Blake by May 15th. But so far, we really don't know much about where the committee's collective head is at, and neither do some of those who are on it that we've contacted, given that it's still in its early organizational stages. In fact, they just formed their initial working groups last Thursday. So instead, you'll hear from several experts in higher education on this episode, all of whom will address some critical questions that the task force itself and GW, quite honestly, will need to grapple with in the months and years ahead in a post-COVID world. Some of those basic questions are, what will GW look like on a day-to-day basis for students and faculty post-COVID? How important are faculty and student input to this planning process? And how can we address issues of equity that were only further exposed by the pandemic? With that said, I first spoke with a pair of higher education experts, Joshua Kim and Edward Maloney. Kim is the Director of Online Programs and Strategy at Dartmouth College, while Maloney is the Executive Director of the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown University. The pair have also authored two books together on the future of higher education, and we spoke about both that issue along with what classrooms may look like moving forward. All right, Josh and Eddie, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us, Alec. Thanks, Alec. So I want to start this conversation with a question that I know both of you have written extensively about before, but I'll put it to Josh first, which is, you know, do, do you believe we're at a turning point in higher education as far as you know, how the decisions made in this moment will influence the learning environment, and not just post-COVID, but for years down the line? Yeah, Alec, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess I'll say I really hope so. Um, I mean, part of this is I'm not only someone who works in higher education, I'm a parent of a, my younger daughter's a junior in college and my older daughter's a first year graduate student. And um, as a parent and paying you know, a lot of money for, for, for school, I really hope that when we come out of this, that they all have a much better learning experience. I hope we'll take a lot of the lessons and a lot of what we've learned at this time so that you know their experience is a lot more even. You know, now their experiences, they have some great classes and some not so great classes, and that drives me nuts. So I, I hope that what we've learned that it'll be more consistent. Um, and I know you'll ask about this later, but I also hope that we figure out a, a way to really bring principles of, of universal learning design and issues of access and equity uh, to the forefront of everything that we're doing, particularly in teaching and learning. Yeah, I think that's right. I think just uh, one thing I would I would add to that, um, I think desire that hope that things will change is that um, there will be a lot of pressure to return to uh, some form of pre twenty twenty um, kind of pedagogy, pre twenty twenty teaching and learning in, in higher education, and I think part of the challenge that we're going to face is figuring out if that's just a pendulum swing and that will actually start to swing back toward recognizing the lessons learned and the things that we should carry forward, or if that, um, that, that move back toward and that desire to be back in the classroom will be so strong that um, there will be a kind of collective amnesia about the things that um, have been successful 
in the face of the challenges and the things that we know that that haven't been so um, great uh, during this time. But I think optimistically and probably realistically, we can say that things just will not be the same going forward and we'll have to we'll have to kind of figure out what that means. And I think that's one of the uh, interesting things about this uh, this task force is trying to understand um, what that landscape will look at, uh, look like. Yeah, so I mean, on that point, Eddie, what do you expect this post-COVID academic landscape to realistically look like for students and faculty on a day-to-day basis and moving forward? Well, so part of it depends on what we mean by post-COVID, right? Is, so is post-COVID the fall when we kind of have a maybe a, a more open um, society where things are, where maybe more, most people have been vaccinated, but we still have a kind of socially distanced mandates. Um, so the classrooms will still require um, some shifting of uh, the kind of environment that we would imagine in a classroom. People will still be wearing masks. Faculty members might still be teaching online and in person. There might be, you know, hybrid capacities and well, as, as well. Um, so that, that, will likely be the case, I would imagine, in the fall. And, and I think all schools should probably be planning for some version of that, even if we want to be as optimistic as possible that we'll be back in full force in person on campus. I think it's also, uh, you know, then we start to look uh, into the spring of 2022 and then beyond um, and what the potential is there. Um, there are some expectations, I suppose, that social distancing will last for a while. And if that's the case, we'll have to really rethink our classroom uses usage at a lot of schools that don't have that are already at capacity, and that will mean reinvesting in some of the tools and the technologies that we've been taking advantage of. Josh and Eddie, thanks so much. Absolutely, Alex. Great to chat. I next spoke with Marguerite Dennis, a higher education consultant who served in numerous administrative roles at universities including Georgetown and Suffolk. Dennis said that she envisions a reimagined university landscape moving forward, where there are changes like a mix of in-person and online classes year-round enrollment for students to begin taking classes remotely if needed, transcripts that reflect competencies and skills learned in courses rather than just grade marks, boosted career counseling, and more students taking gap years, just to name a few. The part of our conversation that will be featured here includes a discussion of the importance of faculty in this post-COVID landscape, including how heavily this task force that GW has just created should weigh the input of university faculty versus the wishes of the administration or students. So talking about all those changes, how quickly do you think an administration like that of GWs would be able to implement some of those things for students in a post-COVID environment? If I were part of this task force, I would say you have six months. You have six months to implement, perhaps gradually, some of the things that you want to implement. Not everything can be done immediately, but gradually and communicatively to telling people, telling students, faculty and staff what it is that you're doing, why you're doing it, so that there can be buy-in. People resist change. That's just part of the human experience. Um, They don't like change. It makes them feel very uncomfortable. Fortunately or unfortunately, this pandemic has has just thrown all of that out the window. There is nothing but change. Everything is unraveling around the edges. Whether you're a a large school like GW in DC or you're a small private liberal arts college in the Midwest with an enrollment of under a thousand and you realize that your chances of going out of business are great unless you do something dramatic and you do it quickly. But of course, it has to be done with consensus And that goes back to the chief executive, to the reimagined chief executive. How willing is that person 
um, how to take to take um, chances to articulate a new vision to create vision planning to replace strategic planning. Strategic plans for three and five years are out. That's that's out the window as far as I I'm concerned. Um, we need people with vision who can think from the end and who can mobilize because they can articulate that end to their constituency. So on this conversation of how COVID has accelerated the need for change in universities, I think the conversation would be remiss without mentioning the inequities in higher education that the coronavirus has only exacerbated in terms of you know, online learning. So how do you think this post-COVID academic landscape could take some of the things that we've learned in this virtual environment and use that moving forward to improve equity through some of the changes that you've mentioned before. With regard to the issue of equity in higher ed that you raise, again, I, I think the pandemic has created the opportunity for future higher education learners and providers uh, to have the option of studying online. So I believe that given time, online providers, uh, be they colleges or universities or alternative educational providers, will be able to address inequalities by offering potential students more courses or certificates or badges at a reasonable cost and provide future learners with the potential to secure employment in the future without incurring unmanageable debt. So I am betting on technology, Alex, to help with the issue of equity in higher education, to help with the issue of expanding the possibility that students can learn online or create or accumulate courses or certificates or badges that will lead to employment. Marguerite, thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me to participate. Lastly, I spoke with Lynn Pascarella, who is president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities. She too agreed that this is a pivotal moment for higher education that could see changes like fast track programs and increased university partnerships with businesses and industries moving forward. In our conversation, we also spoke about a critically important issue, which is that of equity in higher education and how that might come to the forefront in a post-COVID environment. Dr. Pascarella, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. You mentioned the inequities and, and it's important to mention how you know, obviously COVID-19 has exacerbated them to some extent in terms of higher education. So you know, how do you think this post-COVID academic landscape can take some of the things that we've learned in this virtual environment in terms of accessibility and, and use that to improve equity moving forward? Well, I think we need to account for what we learned from COVID-19 and the expansiveness of the digital divide and look at ways that we can deliver a curriculum that is indeed equitable, making sure that people have access to high-speed internet, that they have the tools necessary to engage in uh, online learning, that they have the resources, that the, their food and shelter insecurities are addressed, that we're looking at the, the psychological and, and physical barriers to education right now. So all colleges and universities need to take direct aim at the educational disparities and patterns of systemic disadvantage, especially those resulting from the historical and contemporary effects of, of racism and making equity a pervading focus of educational reform and innovation is going to require colleges and universities to move beyond the goals of access and compositional diversity to conceive of and deliver educational experiences that support success of all students. So what are some of the ways you think that can be done? Uh, I think we need to 
make this shift. Um, student success depends not on the college readiness of individual students, but rather on the readiness of institutions to respond to the changing needs of an increasingly diverse society. So if we reconceive um, excellence as a process rather than an outcome, that's going to require that we provide students with regular opportunities to demonstrate achievement in a range of knowledge and skills across their educational experiences and pathways, and that are assessed in ways that promote continuous improvement. And so imply, applying more equitable assessment through a student's college experience carries that potential for contributing positively to completion rates of low-income students, especially at institutions like GW. Dr. Pascarella, thank you. You're welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you to Joshua Kim, Edward Maloney, Marguerite Dennis, and Lynn Pascarella for joining us. Gang to the Bottom of It is hosted by Alec Rich and is produced by Gwen Wheeler. 